0: And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin, sponsored by GEHA. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Tuesday, December 12th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton, Michelle Sandiford, and Darris Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, how to help troubled service members and veterans get through the holidays. Plus, Navy shipbuilding has an uncertain future and an uncertain budget. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of the Federal Drive. But first, industry and government agree it is time to overhaul the cloud security program known as FedRAMP. For much of the last decade, cloud providers and cloud buyers have mostly agreed with the spirit and intent of the Federal Risk Authorization and Management Program to standardize and make use of secure cloud services easier, In his reporter's notebook, Federal News Network's Jason Miller explores how the new draft FedRAMP memo is expected to remedy ongoing problems of FedRAMP. Jason joins me now, and this came out October. What are they trying to do here?
1: There's several different changes that they're trying to push out here, and I think a lot of it is in reaction and feedback from industry, from agencies. And really, you know, Tom, remember, FedRAMP came out in 2011. You and I were around. We remember those early days and how exciting it was. And I think after 12 years, there's been a lot of change in, in the cloud world and, and government. So the first, one of the first big things they're doing is the Joint Authorization Board. This is a, the oversight board that's, you know, you've got to get the jab authorization for government-wide cloud services. They're changing that into more of an oversight board that is more like the Technology Modernization Fund, a TMF board. They're also creating a six-person technical advisory group underneath that new oversight board, the FedRAMP board. Now, the other thing they're doing is the focus on automation and continuous monitoring with GSA leading an effort to really establish a means of automating security assessments and reviews. And the FedRAMP PMO, Program Management Office, in coordination with this new board, with CISA, is going to establish a framework for continuous monitoring of cloud services and products. All of that is laid out in this draft memo, roles, responsibilities for GSA, the new FedRAMP board, the technical advisory group, NIST, and, and agencies more broadly. Now, as I said, Tom, this was the first update since 2011. There's been some evolution of FedRAMP. We remember FedRAMP Ready, FedRAMP Tailored. There's been pilots that have been built around automation. But really, this is a really significant change. And I think uh, multiple federal experts I spoke with are very excited for this change.
0: Yeah, you spoke to several industry and federal tech types. And I guess, what was their initial reaction to the draft memo, especially with respect to getting some of the time and expense out of FedRAMP authorization, something the vendors have complained about continuously since it launched.
1: You're absolutely right. I, when I spoke with five industry, two government experts, uh, again, they all applauded OMB's efforts. Uh, they applauded them from a communication perspective, more importantly, for sharing the memo, seeking comments, trying to ensure that OMB and FedRAMP didn't miss anything. In fact, one agency CIO I talked with, and and they even called themselves a reluctant user of FedRAMP over the years, said the restructuring and augmenting of the governance process is one of the most important changes. This CIO tells me the jab started out strong, but over the last few years, and they said whether it's the pandemic or other reasons, it's really been a challenging organization, has not been as agile as it really needs to be. Uh, And I think that that's reflected in the changes in the memo. Another agency I/O told me the tag, this group of six security experts from across the government will also be an important change. They hope that the tag comes up with a more consistent way to assess risk, one that agencies can easily understand, accept, and kind of relieve some of the burden that has built up over the years. So I think those are two big points that governance side. I also spoke with Stephen Kovac, the chief compliance officer and head of global government affairs at Zscaler. He says there's some concerns about losing this marquee of the jab, right? If you went through a jab, Authorization that was a real big feather in your your cap, and I think that you know, and agencies and government uh, contractors spent millions of dollars to earn that approval. But Tom, overall, and I think Willie Hicks, the public sector technolo- chief technologist for Dynastrust, really summed up what many agencies and industry experts why they're excited about this new approach to FedRAMP. After again these years of smaller changes like FedRAMP Ready. And FedRAMP tailored?
2: I think those were attempts to make the process easier, more attainable for for more companies and SaaS providers. But for lack of a better term, they were almost like patches or band-aids. They really didn't address the fundamental problems. And I think, you know, and I should, when I say problems, I I, I go back to originally, I think FedRAMP being geared towards kind of the infrastructure and um, platform as a service type of offerings. Um, not really, i think as much geared towards SAS. I, I, I don't think it accounted for, a lot of the problems that we see today, especially, you know, you look at the vast number of SaaS um, platforms out there. Again, that's Willie Hicks, the public sector chief technologist
1: for Dynatrace.
0: All right. And then getting to that specific issue of cost and time for vendors, OMB, are they taking steps to get at that issue directly?
1: I think they are. I think and this is what the driving factor behind this revamp of FedRAMP has been is is this idea. It just takes too long. It costs too much, millions of dollars, months and months of time, you know, and, and that's if you're lucky. Uh, and then the other piece of it, and it's related, is this drive to more software as a service. I think there's more seeking authorization. If you look at the 400 plus that have been authorized, a strong majority already are SaaS providers. But many of them are not these small and medium businesses that, again, the cost and time commitment is just huge for them. And because OMB is recognizing that the more agencies want SaaS products and services, more agencies want to get through this process, you know, want, want the vendors to get through the process more quickly. They want to use automation, continuous monitoring to reduce cost, accelerate the time for approval, but not lose any rigor. And in fact, John Harmon, who leads the elastic US public sector cyber solutions business, says automation really should drive down costs and make things go faster and let a lot more SaaS companies into the
2: market. How do we get SaaS based companies excited about wanting to get into getting the FedRAMP? Because I hear more small companies say they don't want to do it. It's too much of a headache, too expensive for them to kind of do, for any kind of new, new innovation.
1: Along with John Harmon from Elastic, I also spoke with Jason Weiss. He's the chief operating officer of Testify Sec, a software startup that focuses on securing the software supply chain. He's also the former Defense Department chief software officer, so he knows FedRampa a little well. He says the automation controls and continuous monitoring are, are really part of needing to re-educate chief information security officers, other authorizing officials, and others about how these processes work, but he says the use of OSCAL, the open security controls assessment language, this is something that FedRAMP has piloted over the years, would be a very key piece to this automation effort.
2: The devil's in the details and the number of tools that support OSCAL, and more importantly, the number of tools across the federal government that can actually integrate and share that information. And so I think the challenge with the automation, in my opinion, is if somebody uploads a machine-readable format like OSCAL to FedRAMP, to say, hey, here's my proof. Where is that going to be stored in the FedRAMP environment? And how does a member of uh, say the DOD or the member of the Department of Veterans Affairs or even DHS gain access to that and actually make sense and make a risk-informed decision?
1: Weiss from Testify Sec says this transparency will actually be one of their biggest challenges to make this automation very successful.
0: All right. So now the draft memo is out. And what should people expect next? What's coming in the next few months here to get this thing actually implemented?
1: Almost everyone I spoke with says, I want to see more details. Show me more than just the memo. Right. But in the meantime, Tom, comments are due December 22nd. OMB has uh, extended that through December 22nd, the comment period. So another 60 days, 90 days, maybe more until that memo is finalized. And then, again, once that memo comes out, I think what industry and government are going to be looking for is some sort of strategy or implementation plan from the FedRAMP Program Management Office. How are they going to take everything that calls for the memo and really put that into motion? I talked with uh, Jim Rivas, the CEO of the Cloud Security Alliance, and a key metric he'll be paying attention to over the next year or more is is that number of cloud service providers getting through the low and moderate accreditation processes. He says that that really will be a key metric for, hey, did these changes work? Zscalers Kovac says he'd like to see more details about where CISA fits into this discussion. There's little to no mention of the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, specifically in FedRAMP memo. And he says, listen, we know their role in cybersecurity management oversight has only increased over the last five years. What role will they be playing? He wants to see that connection. And then finally, one of the agency CIOs I spoke with told me they'll be looking for better interoperability, collaboration among agencies and the FedRAMP program office, reduce burden, reduce time, make it easier, make it more secure. And, of course, uh, reciprocity is always one everyone looks at. So a couple of key metrics there, Tom, that, again, we'll be looking at over the next year, 18 months.
0: All right. Federal News Network's Jason Miller, thanks so much.
1: My pleasure, Tom.
0: And once again, OMB has extended that comment period to FedRAMP draft memo. You've got till December 22nd. We've got a link to it and to Jason's story at FederalNewsNetwork.com. Still to come, the Navy's shipbuilding program has an uncertain future and an uncertain budget. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Network. The Navy isn't quite certain how many ships and submarines it wants to build over the next few decades. In fact, it's offered three alternative plans to Congress with varying timelines and price tags. For analysis, we turn to the senior analyst for Naval Forces at the Congressional Budget Office, Eric Labs. Mr. Labs, good to have you with us.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: And you have studied this extensively. And I guess my first question is, and we're going to get to the shipbuilding capacity of the United States, but Navy warships by statute, if I'm correct, must be built in the United States. Is that correct?
2: That's correct. Congress requires that Navy warships be built in U.S. shipyards. And they even take it a little bit further than that. They do have on the books rules, laws to make sure that the content the shipyards use to build those ships is mostly American-made as well, and looking to increase that uh, in the future, that content.
0: Yes, because I guess in the Coast Guard, there are a couple of vessels, classes that are made, I think, by a Finnish contractor and so forth, but those are not warships, they're some other type of vessel. Let's get to the plans, and you present three alternative plans, because that's what Navy presented to Congress and for CBO to evaluate. What is their strategy in presenting three alternative plans with different mixes of vessels in each of those plans.
2: Honestly, that is not very clear. It is not very clear to me. It's not very clear to the Congress. This phenomenon that you describe of multiple plans in their shipbuilding report started last year with 2023. They had three plans last year. First plan, by a little less than 300 ships, emphasize surface combatants a little bit more than submarines, move to new generation ships fast. The second plan, which was actually put together by the Office of Secretary of Defense's CAPE, its analytic unit, it was going to emphasize submarines a little bit more than surface combatants, and it would emphasize building more of existing classes of ships and fewer of next generation ships. And those two alternatives were going to be under a fiscal constraint, basically the same amount of money that the Navy is getting for shipbuilding that it is getting today. Then the third plan is: well, if you give the Navy some more money, what does it do for it? Well, in that third alternative, it would buy a little bit more of everything, although not quite as many submarines as Alternative Two. And the idea behind this, I guess, is to sort of give ideas of sort of what would be the trade-offs that you can buy with, you know, fixed amounts of money, or if you had more money, what can you buy? The problem is, is I don't think the Congress really knows what to do with these three alternative plans. The statute implies that they should be submitting one plan, not three.
0: Interesting, and because you would think that the plan of the mix of the ships should start not from here's different dollar volumes, but here's what the strategy is of the Navy for defending the nation, and that should derive from the Quadrennial Defense Review and the other documents that are out there. Shouldn't that be the driver and not some kind of a Chinese menu, if you will, of here's what we could do?
2: I think there's two ways I want to answer that question. One is, to some degree, at a very broad level, it does do that. The Navy is not going to put a shipbuilding plan out there that is, you know, radically at variance with what the national defense strategies of the United States. That being said, the Navy admits directly in this shipbuilding plan, in its cover letter and in the document itself, that, OK, the plan in 2024 is a holdover of 2023. It has not been aligned to the national defense strategy that was put out in 2022. We're gonna do that, we're gonna align the Navy shipbuilding plan in the fiscal year 2025 budget and shipbuilding plan with that national defense strategy. So does that mean in 2025 in February when this budget and shipbuilding plan comes over, we'll have one plan and not three? I hope so, because it's a lot of work for me to do three plans rather than one, but I don't know, so it's not clear.
0: And just on the budget itself, what is the variation in the costs of the various plans? And in general, what percentage of the Navy budget and of the defense budget do they represent? My quick summary look at your report sounds like it's about 5% of the total defense budget.
2: Right. In terms of shipbuilding, it's only going to be you know a relatively small amount, about 5%, as you say. In terms of the total cost of the plans, by CBO's estimate, it would cost about anywhere from 33 to 36 billion dollars on average every year for the next 30 years to implement any one of these plans. And the, the range, of course, is depending on which plan you're talking about. And that's a large amount of money. We have not spent that much money on Navy shipbuilding for that long period of time in our nation's history. So these are challenging plans that the Navy you know, is putting forward for people to consider.
0: We're speaking with Eric Labs, he's senior analyst for naval forces and weapons at the Congressional Budget Office. And besides the number of vessels, there's also what those vessels can do, and that's gotta figure somehow into the equation because if one ship costs X, but it can launch thirty percent more missiles, and the other ship costs X minus ten percent, but it doesn't have that capability, that has to complicate the trade off questions.
2: Absolutely. And a lot of people do fixate on sort of the total number of ships in the fleet or the total number of ships that we're buying. But you're absolutely right that the composition of that fleet, the composition of those ships that we're buying and what those individual ships can do, the capabilities they bring to the fleet matter a great deal more than, say, like an overall you know, numerical count. One of the things that the Navy did do in its shipbuilding plan last year when it first introduced these three plans is it introduced some measures of capability that we could look at and compare the plans in an unclassified format. The Navy does a lot of its analysis and classified like campaign models and things like that. We can't really understand that. But, you know, the number of missile cells, the number of sorties the fleet can launch. These are measures that they put into their shipbuilding plan to try and facilitate comparison. The problem with that is that they didn't give much guidance or headlights or signals to the Congress to say, well, what does this mean? What can Alternative 2 do better than Alternative 1 can do and so forth? They showed these measures of comparison without giving any guidance as to sort of what they mean and how to use them.
0: And continuous published reports talk about how China is churning out a navy and almost like faster than Carnival cruise lines. They've got maybe not quite as capable or quite as good, but then, you know, there's the doctrine thought that there is strength in just sheer numbers, even if they're less capable, they can swarm and so on, surround Taiwan or whatever the case might be, which gets me to the question of the defense industrial base for whatever the Navy would like to do, is there the industrial capacity? And if Congress decided, well, maybe we ought to accelerate this and do it in 20 years or 10 years, given the threat situation, could the nation actually fulfill those orders?
2: To accelerate this shipbuilding plan, in other words, to say like, you know, Alternative One builds 290 ships, to try and build those 290 ships in 15 or 20 years, as opposed to over 30 years, that's not really possible with the industrial capacity that we have today. Right now, the submarine industrial base, which is the one weapon system in the fleet that everyone agrees that we need more of them, more of them as fast as we can get them. Submarine industrial base is already currently at its limit because of all the things that they've had to do in terms of buildup of new replacement ballistic missile submarine, building up two attack submarines per year. They can't really do much more. Now, the Navy is going to invest heavily into that submarine industrial base. Billions and billions of dollars will go into to increase that capacity. But that's going to take five to 10 years before we bear fruit to be able to build more than what we're already building today. And that's going to be true for uh, across a lot of other types of combatants. as Well, there's some slack in some categories, but a lot of it is, you know, we don't have the industrial capacity to compete with China's rate of shipbuilding right now.
0: Right. There's only one builder of these submarines, and there's no six companies that can compete for each tranche of subs.
2: The way we build submarines is that there are actually two submarine builders but they each only build about half of an attack submarine. And then they ship those sections to each other for alternating final assemblies of those submarines. To build a nuclear powered submarine would require a huge investment, you know, like 15 to $20 billion to build a new shipyard that could actually produce those submarines and take probably 15 to 20 years to get that really up and running. So yes, with respect to submarines especially, we're stuck with the shipbuilders that we have. Now, there are things that the Navy is doing to help that. There are sections of submarines that are starting to farm out to other shipyards and other companies. They build a deck here, they build a compartment there, and they start incorporating that into sort of a one nation as one shipyard, if you will. So the Navy's going down that direction very strongly because they recognize they have to. They can't meet the demand signal without doing that because they don't have other yards that can build the submarines.
0: And a lot of that relates to the complexity of modern weapons. I mean, they're so sophisticated that, you know, the wiring diagram must be 75 miles alone, you know, for a submarine
2: technological complexity of a modern warship is enormously greater than it was in World War II when we were able to, you know, we had the we had an industrial base that was much bigger for World War II. But also the, the, the weapon systems back then, the ships back then were less complicated, less technologically difficult to build. And we could just produce them uh, on a massive scale in a way that we can't possibly do that today.
0: And I guess the bigger philosophic question is in actual armed combat you know, the model everyone has is, well, you know, the shipbuilders and the airplane builders back home just churn these things out. You know, 15,000 of this bomber in World War II, 14,000 of that bomber, and, you know, you sunk a carrier, and there's a couple new ones pop up a few months later. That's totally fantasy in today's world, isn't it?
2: fantasy in today's world. I was just recently the other day looking at sort of the Essex-class carrier class that we built in World War II, which was the mainstay aircraft carrier class we built throughout the war and we ordered you know 10 of those ships at a time in different year depending on which year you're talking about right now we can build one aircraft carrier every five years with a little effort we might be able to build one aircraft carrier every four years but if we lost an aircraft carrier tomorrow to whatever you know danger or threat that aircraft carrier essentially cannot be replaced for decades
0: Yeah. Where's Henry Kaiser when you need him? Eric Labs is senior analyst for Naval Forces and Weapons at the Congressional Budget Office. Thanks so much for joining me.
2: Thank you for having me. I enjoyed the conversation.
0: And we'll post this interview along with a link to his report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, five things contractors need to know about the Defense Authorization Bill. But first, how to help troubled service members and veterans get through the holidays. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Tis the season to be jolly, but military service members and veterans often experience a spike in depression or post-traumatic stress disorder, even suicide. For some of the warning signs and how you can help, we turn to the director of the Warriors Heart Admissions, Michael O'Dell. Mr. O'Dell, good to have you with us. Yes, thank you so much. And let's begin with Warriors Heart Admissions. You're based in Texas, but you've moved to Virginia. What does the organization do?
3: Yes, so we have two facilities, uh, one in Texas, one in Virginia. And uh, they both are are here to treat veterans, first responders, and active duty military who struggle with substance abuse and post-traumatic stress.
0: All right. And so you have licensed counselors that uh, are available to the folks that want to come in and avail of themselves?
3: Yes, sir. Fully licensed and accredited to include the Joint Commission. We've got doctors, nurse pracs, and all the clinicians they need to get their healing in order.
0: And tell us about your own story. What led you to found this? Because you are a Marine Corps veteran of Iraq and saw some heavy duty action there,
2: correct?
3: Yes, so I'm from Bandera, Texas, which is where the Warrior's Heart Texas location is. And I joined the Marine Corps when I was 19 years old, quickly deployed to uh, Fallujah, Iraq, and Ramadi. And when I got out of the Marine Corps in 2010, uh, I struggled severely with substance abuse and post-traumatic stress. And uh, I ended up finding myself about five years later, sitting behind bars in prison in Texas for substance abuse related issues. And uh, I sat there for two years and um, wondered how I could have an honorable discharge, have served my country so well and honorably, and then wound up in the penitentiary. And when I was released from prison, I actually found my place at Warrior's Heart. And I've been here since uh, almost six years now, uh, serving this population in this community.
0: And that's kind of a double edged situation, because if someone does end up in prison for some issue related to post-traumatic stress or whatever the case might be, that limits future employment prospects, unfortunately.
3: It does. It becomes very challenging. Uh, a, a lot of people will not look past your past uh, and they only want to know what you 're about, and so i was I was blessed with the opportunity uh, to be able to use the things that i 've gone through in my past to help other people come out of that
0: and let 's talk about the holiday season, the Christmas season, Hanukkah season, whatever you want to call it holidays. It does tend to magnify. what have you found with respect to the population you serve, veterans? people still in active duty military and first responders. Yes, yeah,
3: so the holidays are tough, especially so for the for military, a lot of us will deploy, will be gone for the holidays and we form this tight brotherhood, this camaraderie with our fellow soldiers, marines and service members. And a lot of the times some of them that we served with are no longer with us, whether they died in combat, whether they uh, succumbed to suicide, um whether they committed that final act. They're no longer with us. And so oftentimes the holidays can bring those memories back. They can bring back the trauma. They can bring back that loss that we suffered through. And then the first responders, uh, a lot of them, we know that things escalate during the holidays, celebrations, parties, uh, drinking, uh, the, the, the festivities that come along with it, brain uh, problems. And the first responders spend their holidays away from their families trying to protect the community and respond to these, uh, these situations through the holidays. So when a first responder might think of, of July 4th or Christmas or New Year's, they're not thinking about a picture perfect holiday. They're thinking about the accidents that they have to respond to and then come home and act like it's all okay.
0: In watching the Army-Navy game, you know, last week on television taking place up there in New England Patriot Stadium, they had cutaways to different military units around the world as they were watching the game. And in that case, you had service members operating together somewhere far away from home, but at least they had one another, even though it's the holiday season. What's the dynamic? in which a service member then might be home, but the camaraderie and the fellowship of those service members around them are not there, and it's just family and people on the street driving by. Yeah, it's
3: it's a, you know, every time a warrior comes through the gates at Warrior's Heart, one of the things that we do as an organization is welcome them home. Every warrior that comes through our gates gets welcomed home. And a lot of them don't know what that means at first. It really is spiritual. When a first responder or a service member comes back from a mission or comes back from deployment, they might be home, but they're not really there. Their mind is with their brothers in combat. Their they're, they're, uh, Their thoughts are with them and they're acting like they're home. They're trying to be home, but they're just not there
0: yet. And those that are there with them, what can family members, friends, acquaintances do to help ease that situation and make them feel like they belong where they are. Because words can sound empty. They
3: can. And, you know, I, I go back to to my experience. Uh, it, it, when I came, when I was home, I was not well. I was not okay. I was I was not doing good. And people continued to ask me what was wrong. What's wrong? What's wrong? What's wrong? Why are you not okay? Why can't you fix yourself? And I know that they meant it. I know that they wanted me to do well, but those words pierced my soul. It just, it, it set in stone that I'm not okay. And so I think one of the best things you can do if you notice a loved one is struggling is to just love them and listen to them and when appropriate support them. But I just go back to what's wrong. It's like, don't ask them what's wrong. Clearly they're not Okay.
0: And what are some of the external signs that people should look for to go into that mode of simply listening and being empathetic without trying to probe and give empty advice?
3: Yeah. So, so there's there's all kinds of signs and symptoms out there. It's like you can look for sadness on your on your loved one's face. You can uh, a loss in appetite, fatigue. You can see feelings of guilt and shame, and and they're they're just not present. If your family member or loved one is not present, and you can tell, something's wrong. Something's wrong. People crave presence. And when they don't have it, something's
0: off. And what can you say then that has meaning or is there a way to gently suggest that they go to a place like Warriors Heart Admissions? There are other organizations that offer these types of services. Is it okay to simply suggest check them out?
3: It is. We we highly recommend. So there's a lot of uh, good videos on YouTube. We have a documentary, Warriors Healing Warriors. It's on Amazon Prime and it really paints a beautiful picture of who we are and what we do and why we're here. But what a loved one can do is is just say, hey, I, I can tell that you're struggling. I know that you know that I know, and I want to be there to support you. I've found this resource, and and if you'd like, I can call, or you can call, or they can call you. My team is very experienced. I'm a veteran, as, as we talked about already. I've got uh, a retired police on my team. We, we understand what's going on, so you're not going to be talking to someone in some other country It doesn't know what you're going through. We get it because we've been there.
0: And people that have troubles with alcohol, alcoholism, there is a heightened temptation, heightened availability, heightened pushing almost of drinking during the holiday season at the holiday gatherings and so forth. How do you navigate that one?
3: That's a tough one, especially for folks that that truly do struggle with substance abuse because we want our holidays. We, We know we're not perfect. We, we know that. People know they're not perfect. And and when we know we're not perfect and we're seeking a perfect holiday, it adds stress. It adds pressure. And then the pressure will explode. And people, it's okay for folks out there that are, that have a drink with their family and loved ones. That's, that's all fine. But for the ones that can't do that, we try to be normal. And so we try to fit in. And then next thing you know, we're not fitting in. And things have exploded from the pressure of just trying to be what we think is normal.
0: So a pure eggnog without the rum, that's not such a bad way to host a party then, is it?
3: That's not a bad way to host the party.
0: All right. Any other thoughts people should understand when when uh, having a loved one who is a service member, veteran, or first responder around in the holidays?
3: So there's a lot of things that loved ones and the, the warriors themselves can do. If they're in recovery, they can go to a meeting. They, they, if they're in recovery, they understand that service is key. Finding somebody they can serve, finding something they can do with their time that helps others. And family members can engage in that as well. Take the family out and go serve somebody. That brings so much more meaning to, to the holidays than just trying to make it so picture perfect because we know it's not going to be that way anyway.
0: Michael O'Dell is director of the Warriors Heart Admissions and a Marine Corps veteran. Thanks so much for joining me.
3: Thank you so much for having us. It was a pleasure.
0: We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, five things contractors need to know about the defense authorization bill. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Mm-hmm. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Network. It looks like Congress has managed to get the National Defense Authorization Law done before that December 31st deadline. As always, the bill is chock full of items federal contractors should pay attention to. For five of them, we turn to the President and CEO of the Professional Services Council, David Berteau. And let's begin, David, by saying this is a been as close to the wire as I think Congress has come.
4: We came close uh, a few times before. And Tom, you know, it's 60 years in a row that we have passed the National Defense Authorization Act. And so it has two factors. One is it's essential for defense. But the second is because it's one of the few bills that you think will pass. It has a magnetic attraction for other legislation, which may or may not actually matter to DOD, but matters to Congress. right? So it, it's got a lot in it.
0: Right, and so we are usually concerned with the 800 series of provisions. That's where they put procurement. And the first one you have pointed out is... Preventing Conflicts of Interest for Entities that Provide Certain Consulting Services for the Department of Defense. That's the title of it. What's in there that we need to uh, know about?
4: Well, first of all, uh, consulting services is is defined differently in, in statute than it is in regulation. And so that's a big question of what constitutes consulting services. And the bill's not abundantly clear there, so that'll have to be worked out in the implementation. But the basic idea is DOD should not be doing business with companies that are also doing business with China, with Russia, with individuals who are on the do not want the watch list, the terrorist watch list and, and other entities, companies or other entities. So that's kind of a good idea. The question is, how do you implement it in such a way that it actually hurts them more than it hurts us? And so, you know, there were earlier provisions that were proposed that clearly would have ended, ended up hurting both DOD and government contractors more than it hurt China. Uh, Now, I think it's been revised uh, and PSC certainly helped uh, helped along those lines uh, to something that is probably manageable. First of all, you don't want to do business with somebody who's also doing business with China. But companies are big and they may have multiple entities that are across the board that aren't doing business with DOD. So it's possible under this provision to have a mitigation plan that says nobody working on the DOD work. We'll be working on the China or the Russia or the other entity work as well. That's a reasonable thing. And then if all else fails, there's a waiver provision so that DOD can, in fact, get what it needs. We are pretty comfortable with this final outcome.
0: Right, And there are companies that have European origins, for example, that work for federal entities, including defense, that have that provision where they have a separate board of directors and a firewall between them and the European or Canadian entity that would keep them working for the government, even if the European part, say, is doing business with Russia.
4: That, that, that's exactly the case. And, and you could end up, you know, with, with uh, that being part of the mitigation plan. In addition, Tom, it's important to recognize that if you ban U.S. companies from doing business, that doesn't necessarily mean the business won't get done. It'll just get done by another company in another country. So, you know, China ends up better off and we end up worse off. That's not necessarily a good thing. So this is a reasonable outcome for everybody.
0: All right. And then there's Section 824, modification and extension of temporary authority to modify certain contracts and options based on, here it comes, the impacts of inflation. That is, can they shell out more if the contractor is experiencing inflation?
4: Well, this has been a problem, obviously, for the last couple of years when inflation rates hit 8, 9 percent last year. Companies were saying, hey, we bid based upon, you know, 0.25% Fed rates and and inflation that was in the low ones and twos. And now we're having to perform. It's not only the impact of inflation, there's an added impact from the cost of workers, right? Because we're still in America, we have one and a half vacant jobs for every person looking for work. So it's kind of a seller's market, right? You've seen this across the board. No company, by the way, I do this every meeting we have with PSC members. I say, raise your hand if you have all the workers you need. I have yet to see a hand go up, Tom. I mean, this is a very competitive environment. So costs have gone up, whether it's directly from inflation or whether it's indirectly from the shortage of workers. And that wasn't in your bid. And so the tendency for the government is to say, Hey, you bid it, you perform it right. You suck it up. Well, eventually there's no up to suck here. And, uh, and you, you've got we'll to, have to patent that phrase. <laughs> there's no up
0: to suck here. Yeah.
4: <laughs> no, no up to suck anymore. Um, so this, this is a, a provision that was in last year's bill. Technically, the provision requires a separate appropriation, which hasn't happened yet and may not happen. Uh, that's a subject of another conversation on this show. Um, but what we found was that just the existence of the authority made it possible for programs if they wanted to accommodate the increased costs that the company had as part of the deliverables within available funds, it gave them the flexibility to do so. So we were really pleased to see this provision back in the bill this year.
0: We are speaking with David Bertoz, CEO and President of the Professional Services Council. And there's still one other, a pilot program, and this is under Section 874, to incentivize progress payments. So that's, again, not a full blown program, but they're going to try out something here.
4: They're going to try it out. So, So basically, the idea is that because a company can't get reimbursed for the interest costs on loans and it has to finance its work before it delivers the products or the end results to the government, the government sometimes issues progress payments. You've made 80% of the progress, so you get a certain percentage of the cost you've had up to that point reimbursed along the way, right? So, But periodically, DOD will try to tie those progress payments to something other than progress, that is, other than delivering on the contract, like maybe a the eligibility of your business systems or, or you know, your cost uh, proposals being accurate, et cetera, or being complete. And those are what I, I would call input measures. So we've resisted at PSC the idea of tying progress payments to inputs. We want to tie progress payments to progress on the actual performance of the work, right? So the, uh, the, the bill uh, previously proposed something that would essentially allow contractors to make more in-progress payments if they had more of those inputs lined up. We objected to that and say, no, it's fine to increase progress payments, but do it based upon actual results. This pilot program actually is—it has some preambles it needs to set up. It's based on criteria that DOD hasn't yet developed, and they're going to have to develop. So it'll be a while before we see the pilot, but it's certainly better than tying everything to inputs rather than results.
0: And given DOD's movement on some of these provisions in NDAA's pilot programs, new rules, it could be four or five years, realistically.
4: We've seen pilots come and go, uh, you know, not on my list here, but, you know, uh, uh, we've had a a pilot, presumably they let losers pay in the event of a frivolous protest. Um, that pilot never got off the ground, in part because nobody could figure out pays what and have that be consistently applied without it automatically inflate, inflating costs that you would know you'd get reimbursed for. Um, now, there was an attempt to try to do that again. Everyone agrees that protests uh, you know, need to be managed, right? But uh, and, and they can get in the way of successful performance. But they're also, Tom, the best way we have of holding the government accountable for following its own procedures, right? And so there's a balance off that needs to be played out there.
0: Right. And so that provision did not make it in. That was in the House provision. The loser pays for frivolous protests, but not in there.
4: Right. But but we have agreed with the committee staff that we'll bring some ideas to them uh, before they start marking up the FY25 bill. Imagine that we're a quarter of the way through the century here before they start marking up the FY25 bill next spring.
0: Okay, it's the Roaring Twenties in some ways, more than more than one. And then a final provision that did not get in there: Senate Section Eight Sixty Eight Tech Data Rights. And what was proposed, and what did not make it on that one?
4: The proposal, and it may well have come from the Defense Department itself. But the proposal in the Senate bill was that would would give the Pentagon broad authority to essentially grab technical data and intellectual property from companies in a time of conflict or contingency operation without really specifying uh, exactly what the need for that would be, right? And so th- this seemed like a, um, a, a problem that was not well enough defined that you knew this solution was mandated and how would you bound the application of it? You know, the Pentagon could, there's always a contingency operation going somewhere. Uh, It might even be hurricane response, right, or or fire response. And so uh, those are the kinds of things that that we thought needed a lot more clarification. So is another area for discussion as we go into FY25. You certainly want DOD to be able to get what it needs in time of conflict. So that's not an issue. So it, it, it's a question that we'll tackle in next year's bill.
0: David Berteau is president and CEO of the Professional Services Council. As always, thanks so much.
4: Thanks, Tom. And we'll see you on the other side of legislation.
0: All right. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. But first, Veterans Affairs hiring managers say VA is becoming a more attractive employer for in-demand occupations like techies and police officers. One reason, officials have been tapping into VA's new and unique special pay authorities. VA has posted a record year for hiring and expects to meet hiring goals again in 2024. This as the department keeps its benefits workforce on mandatory overtime. More now from Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. And, Jory, good to have you in studio here with us today. Tell us more about VA and its recent hiring successes.
5: Good to be back, Tom. To say that 2023 was a banner year for hiring for VA is a bit of an understatement. Both the Veterans Health Administration and the Veterans Benefits Administration now have their largest workforce. Ever VHA particularly had crushed its hiring goals for FY 2023. Uh, and that is in no small part because of the PACT Act. This is the toxic exposure legislation signed into law last year, greatly expanding the eligibility for VA health care and benefits to a wider population of veterans. And with that added workload comes added hiring and workforce incentives and recruiting tools. And there are some two notable ones that they're making really effective use of the critical skill incentive for employees with skills that are in high demand or are in short supply at the VA and serve a mission related need. The other one is the special salary rate for IT and cyber hires that went into effect at the VA this summer. And they have used that to great effect to bring on those people Now, it hasn't all been roses. There was some coverage this fall that VA had erroneously given that CSI, that critical skills incentive, to some career executives to the tune of $10 million. Oops. They have clawed that money back. They said it was a small percentage of the CSI payments that have gone out. But we heard from VA Secretary Dennis McDonough that they really do want to judiciously use this authority and make sure it's going to the right people.
3: And we have these authorities in a way that many of our federal agency partners do not and would like to have it. So we want to make sure that we manage
0: these tools very, very carefully. So is it simply the money, the pay incentive? Is that solely what's bringing them in or, or what else is going on there?
5: Yeah, it's as simple as that. And it's it's having a great effect, as you said, in the lead for police officers and IT hires. Both of those are hard to come by across the board these days, and just we have some recent VA data to show just how effectively it's working. About 32,000, a little more than that, received these critical skill incentives this year. So, VA is not shy to use this authority. Uh, A majority of them went to HR specialists, uh, assistants, housekeeping aides, and security personnel, including those police officers. And the real significant thing here is that uh, after years and years of seeing a net loss of police officers, VA actually turned that around and they saw a 7% increase in its police force.
0: Now, these hiring incentives, are they higher salaries or are they hiring bonuses and then you were on whatever pay system you would be on otherwise?
5: I believe it is a percentage of like their base rate salary.
0: So they get
5: paid more than they would have. Correct. Yeah. That's in some cases not always outdoing the private sector, but it's narrowing that gap. And it's, you know, the VA doing some extraordinary beyond the pale things to narrow that gap.
0: And they took in a slew of IT people last year.
5: Yeah, they certainly did, in no small part because of that special salary rate. They hired a little under 8,000 IT personnel in FY 2023, the VA did. And they slightly surpassed their goal, but really any agency would be lucky to be in that position to actually you know, exceed their goal for hiring the, that tech talent. And more importantly, they're staying around. They're, they saw a pretty high rate of retention for the past couple of years for the people that are new in these fields that they've been bringing on. And this is going to keep going on, by the way. This is something that under the recent AI executive order that the VA is really front and center to try to keep bringing in this in-demand tech talent.
0: And it sounds like McDonough has had success, or the department has had success, in an area of the country where the boom-boom is a little bit, bloom is off the rose, you might say, and they've been able to recruit people from the West Coast.
5: Yeah. Well, I mean, that's the important part here is that, you know, they have been reaching out to Silicon Valley. They've been reaching out to Seattle. They've been reaching out to these hubs where these tech folks live. And so they have been really making a concerted effort to do that uh, and just recognizing that they have to, you know, look nationwide to get this talent on board and not just, you know, within the D.C. metro area.
0: All right. And then there is the mission that they've got to fulfill. This is the disability claims benefits backlog is something that's bedeviling them for years now. How are they doing there?
5: Well, the one thing that you can expect for 2024 is that that claims backlog is going to go up, and it's going to go up in a big way because of the PACT Act, because it's been working so well that they've been bringing a bunch of people in submitting claims. So the current backlog is somewhere in the neighborhood of 319,000 claims, and that's going to go up to anywhere between 450,000 to 700,000 claims. That's going to be the peak sometime in 2024. And so what we've heard from VBA folks is that that, you know, this is not a setback in their eyes. This is a success that people are taking advantage of the PACT Act. But of course, VA is going to have to pull some strings to make sure that they have the workforce and the manpower to go through those claims.
0: Right. They really put out an aggressive call for people that might have been affected by the burn pits that are coming under the PACT Act. And so they've brought kind of a haystack on themselves, you might say.
5: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's the mission they've been assigned to take on. And they're they're doing everything they can as far as the advertising, letting people know that they're eligible to receive these benefits. And now it's squarely within VA to get the job done to process those claims.
0: And mandatory overtime, therefore. What's the extent of what they're asking of people?
5: On their benefits workforce, they are asking their employees to complete about 20 hours of mandatory overtime each month, uh, with some exceptions here. But we heard from William Clark Sr., who is VBA's deputy undersecretary for field operations. Here he is.
1: I don't like to ask our employees to work overtime, mandatory overtime, but I like less to have veterans waiting. So we are working mandatory overtime that our brute force using the hiring and the great employees that we have in our agency, over 50 percent of whom are veterans themselves.
5: And that's William Clark, Sr., who is, again, VBA's deputy undersecretary for field operations.
0: And. In the context of that overtime and that massive workload, are they using things like telework and making it easy to do the overtime?
5: This is something that we did hear from Secretary McDonough on, is that for VBA employees that we're talking about here, they are trying to keep that maximum telework as an option for them, recognizing that they have really been crushing their productivity metrics for the past couple of years and that he doesn't want to mess with that, you know, that even with this government-wide call to bring people back into the office as much as possible, he doesn't want to mess with what's already been working there.
0: I guess overtime is a little bit more palatable when you're home and your golden retriever is at your feet and the fire blazing in the background or something like that.
5: Yeah, well, recognizing (laughs) they're asking them to do more with the overtime, they want to see what they can do within their authority to uh, counterbalance that.
0: Federal News Network's Jory Heckman, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And be sure to check out Jory's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Temin.